look, this is the beginning of something amazing because there's no limit. This is right now an inflection point where we're sort of, you know, redefining how we interact with digital information. These are the fastest growing open source projects. These are the fastest growing products of some of the fastest growing companies we've seen in the history of the industry. We, for a long time, really focused on building our own infrastructure. We have hundreds of thousands of servers. He said, well, I think we can get by with like 500. I said, okay, I think we can find 500K somewhere. And I remember you deadpan saying, <laughs> dude, I'm talking about $500 million. The internet was the dawn of universally accessible information, and we're now entering the dawn of universally accessible intelligence. The AI revolution is here. But as we collectively try to navigate this game-changing technology, there are still many questions that even the top builders in the world are grappling to answer. And that is why A16Z recently brought together some of the most influential founders from OpenAI, Anthropic, Character AI, Roblox, and more to an exclusive event called AI Revolution in San Francisco recently. And in today's episode, we share the most important themes from this event, starting with the economics of AI, but we also touch on broad versus specialized models, and which ultimately may win, the importance of UX, and also whether we can expect scaling laws to continue. By the way, several founders comment on what they're seeing there, including Noam Shazir, lead author of the preeminent Transformer paper from back in 2017. Now, I won't delay us any longer, other than saying we've got a lot more coverage of this event coming, including how AI is disrupting everything from games to design, how two important waves in machine learning and genomics are colliding, and what we can expect from the enterprise. But in the meantime, if you would like to listen to all the talks in full today, you can head on over to a16z.com slash AI revolution. As a reminder, the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may also maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com disclosures. All right, let's start with Martin Casado, general partner at A16Z, giving the why now and also how the economics of the space may finally be coming together. I will give you the punchline up front. The punchline is if you've ever wanted to start a startup or join a startup, now is a great time to do it. But how early are we in the trajectory of this technology? For example, the microchip was invented in the late 50s. But it wasn't until the turn of the century when Steve Jobs famously put a thousand songs in your pocket. So just how much opportunity is still on the table? Okay, so what has the narrative been for AI over the last 50 years? The narrative is this episodic thing with summers and winters and all of these false promises. I remember when I joined PhD in 2003, for my cohort that joined, I would say, 50% of the people were doing AI. This was like when Bayesian stuff was super popular. And then within three years, everybody's like, AI is dead, right? And so it's kind of been this love-hate relationship with it for a very long time. But if you look at all of the graphs, we've made a tremendous amount of progress in the last 70 years. 
And along the way, we've solved a lot of very real problems, right? Like way back in the 60s, we were doing expert systems, which are still used for diagnosis, right? Like we're very good at beating Russians at chess. You know, we're doing self-driving cars, we're doing vision. There's just a lot of stuff that we've solved. And so much so it's become a cliche that every time we solve a problem, we're like, oh, well, that wasn't really AI, right? So we just keep moving the goalposts. So we've had steady progress. We've solved real problems. And not only that, it's been a while now that we've been better at humans for some very important things. For example, like, you know, perception or handwriting detection. It's been about 10 years since we've been better than humans at entity identification. And not only that, we've actually gotten very good at monetizing this, particularly for large companies, right? And so, as we all know, there's been a ton of market cap that's been added to companies like Meta and Google and Netflix by using AI. So I think the question we should all ask ourselves is why hasn't this resulted in an actual platform shift? And by platform shift, I mean, why has the value accrued to the incumbents? And why hasn't there been a new set of kind of AI-native companies that have come up and displaced them, which we've seen in many other areas, right? We saw that in mobile. Obviously, we saw it with the microchip, et cetera. What I'm going to argue is that the capabilities have all been there, but the economics just haven't for startups. So if you step back and you look at the standalone case for AI economics, not like what a big company can extract from it, but the startup, it's actually not been great. I mean, to begin with, a lot of the sexier use cases are pretty niche markets, right? Like, you know, it's great to beat Russians at chess. Like, maybe it's a useful tool that you can apply to solving bigger problems, but that not itself is a market. I actually think the second point is the most important point, and it's pretty subtle. Many of the traditional use cases of AI require correctness in the tail of the solution space. And that's a very hard thing for a startup to do for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is if you have to be correct and you've got a very long and fat tail, either you do all of the work technically or you hire people. So often we hire people, right? And for startups to start hiring people to provide solutions is a variable cost. And the second one is because the tails of these solutions tend to be so long, think something like self-driving where there's so many exceptions that could possibly happen, the amount of investment to stay ahead increases and the value decreases, right? You have this perverse economy of scale. So we've actually done studies on this, and it turns out many companies that try to do this as startups end up with non-software-like margins. They're lower margins, and they're just much harder to scale. Of course, with robotics comes the curse of hardware, classically a very difficult thing for startups to do. And if you really think, like, what is the competition of most use cases of AI? It tends to be the human, and traditionally it's stuff like the human brain is really good at, like perception, right? Like the brains that we have have evolved over 100 million years to do things like whatever, pick berries and evade lions or whatever it is, and it's incredibly efficient at doing that. So this leads to something that most investors know, which we call the dreaded AI mediocrity spiral. And what is it? It's very simple, which is, let's say a founder comes in and they want to do an AI company and they're going to use AI to automate a bunch of stuff. Of course, correctness is really important and they want it to look good at first, so they hire people to do it instead of the AI. Then they come to us, we invest in them, and I join the board. Then I say, listen, this is great, you need to grow. And they're like, oh man, we need to grow, this AI is hard, like the tail's very long, I'm going to hire more people. And now you're on this treadmill of continuing hiring people and this is one of the reasons why so many startups that have tried to do this just haven't had kind of this breakaway economics and the value accrues to large companies that can actually sink these perverse economies of scale. But, you know, market transformations aren't created when economics get 10 times better. They get created when they're 10,000 times better. So what is the learning from the last, say, 70 years? It's not that the technology doesn't work. It's not that we can't solve the problems. It's not even that we can't monetize it. Big companies are great at monetizing it is that it's very, very hard for startups to break away. And if startups can't break away, you don't get a transformation. 
But what about the current wave, where the everyday consumer can prompt LLMs with natural language and have it output a variety of things, from conversations to images to even 3D models? So this wave is very, very different, and we're already seeing productive, viable businesses, right? Like, I like to call them the three Cs. There's creativity, like any component of a video game you can automatically generate. There's companionship, which kind of more of an emotional connections. And then there's a class that we call Copilot, which will help you with tasks. These are already emerging as independent classes. So remember the properties of AI previously that made it difficult to build a startup company. So none of these really apply to this current model. The first one, obviously, these are large markets that this is being applied to. It's like arguably all of white collar work, even just like video games and movies is like $300 billion market. These are massive, massive markets. The second one, again, I think is, you know, the most important point and maybe the most subtle. In this domain, correctness isn't as much of an issue for two reasons. One of them is when you're talking about creativity, the first C, there is no formal notion of correctness, really. I mean, like, what does it mean to be incorrect for like a fiction story or a video game? I mean, for sure, like you wanna make sure like they have all their fingers, but even then, do you really in sci-fi? And so we have absolutely adapted to use cases where, you know, correctness is not a huge issue. The second one is a little more subtle, but I just think it's so important, which is the behavior that's developed around these things is iterative. And so that human in the loop that used to be in a central company is now the user. So it's not a variable cost to the business anymore. The human in the loop has moved out. And as a result, you can do things where correctness is important. Like for example, developing code because it's iterative. So like you're constantly getting feedback and correction from the user. And I wanna to talk to you about this brain portion because I think it's so interesting. I'm not a neuroscientist, but for these types of tasks, the silicon stack is way better than the carbon stack, right? So if you think about it, like traditional AI, a lot of it is doing stuff like the 100 million year old brain is doing, right? The one that's been fleeing predators or like picking strawberries or whatever it is. And that's very, very hard to compete with. Like remember, if you have the CPU, GPU set up a self-driving car, some of these kits are like you know, 1.3 kilowatts where the human brain is 15 watts. And so economically, that's very tough to compete with. The new Gen I wave, it's, it's kind of competing with like the creative language center of the brain. It's like 50K years old. Like it's, it's much less evolved. And it turns out it's incredibly competitive, so much so that you actually have the economic inflection we look for for a market transformation. So let's just go ahead and break down the numbers very quickly. So let's say that I, Martine, wanted to create an image of myself as a Pixar character, right? So if I'm using one of these image models, the inference cost, let's call it, you know, a tenth of a penny, it's probably less than that, actually. Let's say it takes one second. If you compare that to hiring a graphic artist, Let's say that it was 100 bucks in an hour. I've actually hired graphic artists to do things like this. It tends to be a lot more money than that, but let's conservatively say that. You've got four to five orders of magnitude difference in cost and time. So these are the type of inflections you look for, certainly as an economist, when you're like, there's gonna be actually a massive market dislocation. I'll give you another example from Instabase. So let's assume that you have a legal brief. It's in a PDF. You throw it into this kind of unstructured document LLM, and then you ask questions for that legal brief. Again, the inference cost, say a tenth of a penny, maybe it's a little more, maybe it's a little less. Time to complete, maybe one second, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But as someone who has actually spent a lot of money on lawyers' hours, I want to point out a couple of things. The first one is it takes more than one hour to iterate on this for sure. And the second one is they're not always correct. In fact, built in, for any interaction I have with a lawyer is cross-checking their work and double-checking their work. So again, we have four to five orders of magnitude difference in cost and time. And if you want to have like an example of like how extremely nutty that this can get, like I see no reason why you can't generate an entire game 
there are companies today working on it, the 3D models, the characters, the voices, the music, the stories, et cetera. Like there are companies that are doing all of these things. And if you compare the cost of like hundreds of millions of dollars and years versus you know, a few dollars of inferences, now we have like current like internet and microchip level asymmetries in economics. Now listen, I'm not saying this happens soon, we're not there yet. What I'm saying is this is the path that we're on. And these types of paths are what you look for with big transformations. So it's little wonder why we're seeing so much takeoff the way that we have. I and mean, these are the fastest growing open source projects. These are the fastest growing products and some of the fastest growing companies we've seen in the history of the industry. And it's because, again, it's less capabilities and it's much more that the economics work. So listen, this may sound hyperbolic, but I really think that we could be entering a third epoch of compute. I think that the first epoch, of course, is the microchip. Before the advent of the computer, you actually had people calculating logarithm tables by hands. Like, that's where the word comes from. They were computers. They would compute. Then we created ENIAC, along with other machines, but let's look at ENIAC. So ENIAC was 5,000 times faster than a human being doing it, right? There's your three to four orders of magnitude, and that kind of ushered in the compute revolution, right? And this gave us a number of companies that were either totally transformed like IBM or totally net new. So the microchip brought the marginal cost of compute to zero. The internet brought the marginal cost of distribution to zero. So listen, in the 90s, when I wanted to get a new video game, I would go to a store and buy a box. And again, I don't have the math up here, but if you actually calculate the price per bit relative to DSL in the late 90s, it's about four or five orders of magnitude again, relative to actually shipping it. So I think it's a pretty good analog where you say these large models actually bring the marginal cost of creation to zero. Some very fuzzy, vague notion of what creation means. But for sure, we could talk about it of like content, conversation, whatever it is. And like the previous epochs, when those epochs happened, you had no idea what new companies were going to be created. Nobody predicted Amazon, nobody predicted Yahoo. Like, I remember when this happened. So I think, listen, I think we should all get ready for a new wave of iconic companies. I don't think we know what they're going to look like, but forget the capabilities. Economics are just too compelling. We'll hear more from our team at the end of this episode. But speaking of economics and the scale of top models today, here is our new general partner, Anjani Midha reminiscing about an early call he had with Dario Amade, co-founder of Anthropic, who you'll also hear from shortly. I'm going to take you all back in time to about three years ago. You and Tom gave me a call, one of your co-founders, and said, hey, I, you know, we think we're going to go start Anthropic. And I asked you, great, okay, like, what do you think we need to get going? You said, well, I think we can get by with like 500. I said, okay, I think we can find 500K somewhere. And I remember you deadpan saying, <laughs> Dude, I'm talking about $500 million. <laughs> and that's when I realized that things were going to be a little bit different. Dario was one of the first employees at OpenAI and spent five years there before co-founding Anthropic. And the last year of AI has absolutely captured the masses, but people like Dario were early in recognizing just how far these technologies could scale. What was it that at that moment when, you, when the team at OpenAI had started publishing you know, your first experiments on scaling laws that gave you so much confidence that this was going to hold when everybody else just thought that was crazy talk? Yeah, so for me, the moment was actually GPT-2 in 2019, where there were two different perspectives on it, right? When we put out GPT-2, you know, some of the stuff that was considered most impressive at the time was, oh my God, you give this five examples just offer it straight into the language model, five examples of English to French translation, and then you put a six sentence in English and it actually translates it into French. Like, mm -hmm. oh my God, it actually understands the pattern. 
that was crazy to us, even though the translation was terrible. It was almost worse than if you were to just take a dictionary and substitute word for word. But, you know, our view was that, look, this is the beginning of something amazing because there's no limit and you can continue to scale it up. And there's no reason why the patterns we've seen before won't continue to hold. The objective of predicting the next word is so rich and there's so much you can push against that it just absolutely has to work. And then some people looked at it and they're like, you made a bot that translates really badly. It was just, I think, two very different perspectives on the same thing. And we just like really, really believed in the first perspective. What happened then was you saw a reason to continue down that line of inquiry, which resulted in GPT-3. And what would you think was the most dramatic difference between GPT-3 and the previous efforts? Yeah, I mean, I think it was much larger and mm -hmm. scaled up to a substantial extent. I think the thing that really surprised me was the Python programming, where the conventional wisdom right. uh, is that these models couldn't reason at all. And when I saw the Python programming, even though it was very simple stuff, even though a lot of it was stuff you could memorize, you know, you could, you could put it in kind of new situations, come up with something that isn't going to be anywhere in GitHub. And it was just showing the beginning of being able to do it. And so I felt that that ultimately meant that we could keep scaling the models and they would get very good at reasoning. What was the moment at which you realized, well, okay, we think this is actually going to generalize much broader than we expect? What were some of the signals there that gave you that conviction? I think one of the signals was that we hadn't actually done any work. We had just scraped the web and... Mm -hmm there was enough Python data in the web to get these good results. When we looked through it, it was like maybe 0.1% to 1% of the data that we scraped was Python data. So the conclusion was, well, if, if it does so well with so little of our data and so little effort to curate it on our part, it must be that we can enormously amplify this. Hmm. And so that just made me think, well, okay, we're getting more compute, we can scale up the models more, and we can greatly increase the amount of data so we have so many ways that we can amplify this. And so, of course, it's going to work. It's just a matter of time. Another person optimistic about scaling laws at the time was Noam Shazir. Noam was one of the researchers and lead author behind the transformative 2017 Transformer paper and has since co-founded Character AI. I knew that you know, you can make this technology better in a lot of ways. We can improve it with uh, model architecture and distributed algorithms and quantization and all of these things. So was working on that, but then it struck me, hey, the biggest thing is just scale. Can you throw like a billion dollars or a trillion dollars at this thing? What would happen if we did massively scale compute? Well, many companies chose to find out, and we, the consumer, are the beneficiaries of that. But can this realistically continue? Can the industry just continue to throw more compute at the problem and get better solutions? Or will a more fundamental unlock be required? This theme was top of mind for many at the event. And here is OpenAI's co-founder and CTO, Mira Mirati, tackling that question head on. Do you think the scaling laws are going to hold and we're going to continue to see advancements? Or do you think we're hitting diminishing returns? So there isn't any evidence that we will not get much better, much more capable models as we continue to scale them across the axis of data and compute. Whether that takes you all the way to AGI or not, that's a different question. There are probably some other breakthroughs and advancements needed along the way, but I think there's still a long way to go in the scaling laws and to really gather a lot of benefits from these larger models. We'll hear more from Mira and touch on AGI in part two. 
But first, here's Noam again, in conversation with ACCZ general partner, Sarah Wang, on just how much compute we expect to soon be available, but also how much innovation is on deck, even if there aren't additional fundamental breakthroughs. And for those listening on audio, yes, Noam fully did this computation in his head. I see this stuff like massively scaling up. It's just like not that expensive. I think I saw an article yesterday, like NVIDIA is going to build like another one and a half million H100s next year. So like that's two million H100s. So that's two times 10 to the sixth times they can do about 10 to the 15th operations per second. So two times 10 to the 21 divide by like eight times 10 to the nine people on earth. So that's roughly a quarter of a trillion operations per second per person which means that could be processing on the order of like one word per second on like a hundred billion parameter model for everyone on earth. But like, really, it's not going to be everyone on earth because like some people are blocked in China and some people are sleeping. And like, <laughs> it's not that expensive. You know, like this thing is massively scalable if you do it right. And, you know, we're working on that. You said this once that the internet was the dawn of universally accessible information, and we're now entering the dawn of universally accessible intelligence. Maybe building off your last answer, what did you mean by that? Do you think we're there yet? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like we're really a Wright Brothers first airplane kind of moment, right? Like we've got something that works and is useful for now some large number of use cases and looks like it's scaling very, very well. And without any breakthroughs, it's going to get massively better as everyone just kind of scales up to use it. And there will be more breakthroughs because now, you know, like all the scientists in the world are like working on making this stuff better. It's great that like all this stuff is accessible as open source. Like, you know, we're going to see like a huge amount of innovation and what's possible in the largest companies now can be possible in, you know, in somebody's academic lab or garage in a few years. And then, yeah, as the technology gets better, there are just going to be all kinds of great use cases that emerge and pushing technology forward, pushing science, pushing the ability to, you know, help people in various ways. I love to get to the point where you can just ask it how to cure cancer or something, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know like, I mean, it seems a few years away for now. Do you think we need another fundamental breakthrough like the transformer technology to get there? Or do you think we actually have everything that we need? I mean, it's impossible to predict the future, but like, I don't think anyone's seen like these scaling laws, you know, stop. I think as far as anybody has experimented, stuff just keeps getting smarter. So we'll be able to unlock lots and lots of new stuff. I don't know if there's an end to it, but at least everybody in the world should be able to talk to something like really brilliant and have incredible tools all the time. And I can't imagine that that will not be able to build on itself. At the core, the computation isn't that expensive. Like operations cost like 10 to the negative $18 these days. And, and like, <laughs> you know, if you can do this stuff efficiently, even talking to the biggest models ever trained, the cost of that should be like way, way lower than the value of your time or most anybody's time. And really we should, you know, there's the, the capacity there to scale these things up by orders of magnitude. As the industry does pursue scale, here's Dario's take on what bottlenecks maybe along the way. But the next 24, 36 months, what do you think the biggest bottlenecks are in demonstrating that the scaling laws continue holding? Yeah, so I think there's three elements. There's data, mm -hmm. there's compute, and there's algorithmic improvements. So I think we are on track, even if there were no algorithmic improvements from here, even if we just scaled up what we had so far, 
I think the scaling laws are going to continue, and I think that's going to lead to amazing improvements. I think the biggest factor is simply that more money is being poured into it. The most expensive models made today cost about $100 million, say plus or minus a factor of two. I think that next year we're probably going to see from multiple players models on the order of $1 billion. And in 2025, we're going to see models on the order of several billion, I don't know, perhaps even perhaps even $10 billion. And so I think that that factor of 100 plus the compute inherently getting faster with the H100s, that's been a particularly big jump because of the move to lower precision. So you put the, all those things together, and if the scaling laws continue, there's going to be a huge increase in capabilities. But if compute does increase, how might this impact the size of models and ultimately the cost of inference for consumers? Inference will not get that much more expensive. The basic logic of the scaling laws is that if you increase compute by a factor of n, you need to increase data by a factor of square root of n mm -hmm. and size the model by a factor of square root of n. So that square root basically means that the model itself does not get that much bigger and the hardware is getting faster while you're doing it. So I think these things are gonna continue to be servable for the next three or four years. If there's no architectural innovation, they'll get a little bit more expensive. I think if there's architectural innovation, which I expect there to be, they'll get somewhat cheaper. Increased model size and performance should unlock fundamentally new applications, which we'll explore further in part two. But first, entering the conversation is David Bazuki, co-founder and CEO of Roblox, commenting on the value of owning your infrastructure and the impact of that on inference cost, especially in a 3D world constantly reinventing itself. An even further extension, which takes probably a lot of compute horsepower, which is completely personalized generation in real time, backed by massive inference stuff. Mm -hmm. So you, you could imagine, okay, I'm making the super Dungeons and Dragons thing, but as it watches you play, and maybe we know your history, you'll be playing a 3D experience that no one's ever seen before. One of the good things we've done is we, for a long time, really focused on building our own infrastructure. We have hundreds of thousands of servers, mm -hmm. you know, many, many edge data centers, terabits of connectivity that we've traditionally used for 3D simulation, that the more we can run inference jobs on these, we can run super high volume inference at high quality, at low cost, and make this, you know, mm -hmm. just freely available so the creators don't worry about it. Whether we can continue scaling is one thing. But another topic on the minds of many builders is whether they can compete with the largest models. Will bigger models always win or will specialization trump generality? Martine and Mira discuss. Reminds me very much of the silicon industry. So I remember in the 90s, when you buy a computer, there are all these weird coprocessors. There's like, here's like string matching, mm. here's a floating point, here's crypto. And like all of them got consumed into basically the CPU. It just turns out generality was very powerful. And that created a certain type of economy, one where like you had, you know, Intel and AMD and mm. like, you know, it all went in there. And of course, it creates a lot of money to build these chips. And so, like, you can imagine two futures. There's one future where, like, you know, generality is so powerful that over time, the large models basically consume all functionality. And then there's another future where there's going to be a whole bunch of models and, like, the things fragment and, you know, there are different points of the design space. Do you have a sense of, like, is it OpenAI and nobody or is it everybody? 
It kind of depends what you're trying to do. So obviously the trajectory is one where these AI systems will be doing more and more of the work that we're doing and they'll be able to operate autonomously, but we will need to provide direction and guidance and oversee. But I don't want to do a lot of the repetitive work that I have to do every day. I want to focus on other things. Right. But in terms of like how this works out with a platform. We make a lot of models available through our API, from the very small models to our frontier models. And people don't always need to use the most powerful, the most capable model. Sometimes they just need a model that actually fits for their specific use case. And that's far more economical. So I think there's going to be a range. And there's a lot of focus right now on building more models. But, you know, Building good products on top of these models is incredibly difficult. Plus, each industry may have unique requirements. Here's David commenting on how a suite of models will likely be required in order to power the class of games of the 21st century. In any company like a Roblox, there's probably 20 or 30 end-user vertical applications that mm -hmm. are probably very bespoke. Natural language filtering, very different than generative 3D. Mm -hmm. And at the end user point, we want all of those running. We want to use all of the data in an opt-in fashion to help make these better, tune these better. But as we go down, 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 there's probably a natural two or three clustering of general, bigger, fatter type models in a company like ours. There's definitely one around safety, civility, natural language processing, natural language translation. Mm -hmm. Generally, a one more multimodal thing around 3D creation, say some combination of text, image, whatever, generate a great avatar. Mm -hmm. And then there's probably a third area which gets into the virtual human area, which is how would we take the 5 billion hours of human opted in data, what we're saying, how we're moving, where we go together, mm -hmm. how we work in a 3D environment, and could we use that to maybe inform a better... 3D simulation of a human. So I would say, yes, looking at large models in those three areas. And I think the market as we see it, there's, there's going to be these super big God model, massive LLM type companies. I think we are probably a layer below that. We're very fine-tuned for the disciplines we want. And it's worth noting that the back-end model is only one part of the product. Here is Mira with a reminder to builders about the importance of UX. Actually, you can see sort of the contrast between making these models available through an API and making the technology available through ChatGPT. Yeah. It's fundamentally the same technology, maybe with a small difference with reinforcement learning with human feedback for ChatGPT, but it's fundamentally the same technology and the reaction and the ability to grab people's imagination and to get them to just use the technology every day is totally different. Here is David Bazuki again, in conversation with A16Z general partner John Lai on what UX may be required, especially given the sheer number of games and experiences that we expect to be enabled with AI. Do you think you'll need to have a new like user interface or discovery mechanism I think the user interface, there's a lot of opportunity in addition to thinking of this just as content and thinking of this as your real-time social graph. It's fascinating because I think one of the examples of AI being used by big companies is Netflix and then I think TikTok as well with their sort of very personalized views and recommendations. And you could maybe imagine a future where 
a user that onboards into Roblox isn't, doesn't actually see a library or a catalog of games, but it's just presented with like a feed, and it's almost like you're just going from one thing to the next. This is really right. <clears throat> I think we're we are constantly testing, you know, the new user experience. Should that be 2D? Should that be 3D? What's the weighting between creating your digital identity versus discovery? What's the weighting between connecting with your friends and optimizing all that? And we may find that it has to be personalized. Having text or voice prompt is just something that's naturally part uh -huh. of any experience wherever you go. Just like in a traditional avatar editor, rather than sliders and radio buttons, that will move to, I think, a more interactive type uh -huh. text prompt thing. As we think about UX and the increasing capabilities of these models, how might they let us further integrate with the world around us and connect to more data streams? Here is Mira, David, and Noam exploring the world of multimodality. Today, obviously, you have this great representation of the world in text, and we're adding other modalities like images and video and various other things. So these models can get a more comprehensive sense of the world around us, similar to how we understand and observe the world. The world is not just in text, it's also in images. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in various ecosystems around this co-pilot notion. Mm -hmm. There's one co-pilot where we're all wearing like our little earbud all day long, and that co-pilot is talking to us, so that's more maybe more consumer real-time co-pilot. Uh -huh. There's obviously many companies trying to build a co-pilot that you hook up to your email, your text, your Slack, your web browser, and whatever, and it starts acting for you. I'm really interested in the notion that co-pilots will talk to other co-pilots using like natural English, I think will be the universal <laughs> interface of co-pilots. <laughs> and you, you could imagine NPCs being created by prompts, you know, hey, I, I'm building the historical constitutional thing. I want George Washington there, right. but I want George Washington to act at the highest level of civility and utter mm -hmm. new users through the experience, tell them a little about constitutional history, go away when they're done. <laughs> like, like, I actually do think you will see those yeah. kind of assistance. I mean, also multimodal. Maybe you want to hear a voice and see a face. And then, you know, then also just able to interact with multiple people. Like, yeah, yeah. You, would, you want a virtual person like in there with, you know, say with, with all your friends. Or do you want the experience? It's like you got elected president, you get the earpiece and you get like the whole cabinet of friends or advisors. <laughs> or it's like, you know, like you walk into Cheers and everyone knows your name and they're glad you came. Yeah. So there's a lot we can do to make things more usable, but then also to make it more intelligent and more, more connected to, you know, to what people want. As these dynamic, multimodal products emerge, will natural language be enough to effectively interface with computers? So it could be the case that, like, over time, these things evolve into, like, you just speak natural languages, or do you think it will always be a component of a finite state machine, a traditional computer, etc.? Yeah, I think this is right now an inflection point where we're sort of you know, redefining how we interact with digital information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's through, you know, the form of these AI systems that we collaborate with. And maybe we have several of them, and maybe they all have different competences. And maybe we have a general one that kind of follows us around everywhere, knows everything about what my goals are sort of in life, at work, and kind of guides me through and coaches me and so on. But, you know, there is also 
we don't know exactly what the future looks like. And so we are trying to make these tools available and the technology available to a lot of other people so they can experiment and we can see what happens. It is hard to imagine a world where AI doesn't continue to evolve and disrupt the world as we know it. But as this happens, a common reaction is to wonder what happens to all the jobs. Here's Martin, the man who opened this episode, closing us out with an important reminder. There's always a question when you have market dislocations, like they're staring you in the face, like you know it's coming, what happens to the jobs, what happens to people. There's something called Jevon's paradox, and it's very simple. Jevon's paradox says very simply, if the demand is elastic, it turns out like there's unlimited demand for compute, even if you drop the price, the demand will more than make up for it normally far more than make up for it. This is absolutely the case with the internet, right? So you get kind of more value, more productivity, et cetera. And I personally believe when it comes to creating any creative asset or any sort of kind of work automation, clearly the demand is elastic, right? I think the more that we make that, the more people consume. And so I think that we're very much looking forward to massive expansive in productivity, a lot of new jobs, a lot of new things. I think it's gonna follow just like the microchip and just like the internet. Thank you so much for listening to part one of our coverage from AI Revolution. We really hope this gave you a glimpse into what may be to come, from scaling laws to multimodality. And we will be back in a few days with more key lessons from the event, including how AI is disrupting design, games, and entertainment, plus modern day Turing tests, AI alignment, and future opportunities. And as a reminder, if you would like to listen to all the talks in full today, you can head over to accz.com slash AI revolution. We'll see you soon. If you liked this episode, if you made it this far, help us grow the show. Share with a friend, or if you're feeling really ambitious, you can leave us a review at ratethispodcast.com slash accz. You know, candidly, producing a podcast can sometimes feel like you're just talking into a void. And so if you did like this episode, if you liked any of our episodes, please let us know. We'll see you next time.